Hello and welcome to another Empire Spoiler Special, this one devoted to the end of Season 1 of Andor, the best thing to come out of the Star Wars universe since I got off the Galactic Star Cruiser Immersive <laughs> Hotel back in February. I probably have never mentioned that, but I went and it was awesome. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and I'm joined today by two colleagues of such lethal cunning that they're probably running a rebel spy ring from an antique shop right now, and we don't even know about it. First up, our very own Anvil player. It's Amon Warman. You're meant to keep that on the DL, Helen. You can't just be announcing my plans on <laughs> podcast. Hello, everybody. Everyone here is a friend. It's fine. Oh, wait, no, because we're also joined by everyone's least favourite ISB supervisor. It's James Dyer. Hello, Helen. How are you? <laughs> you see, you even sound like him. I do. It is true. I have, a, I have an, an, an imperial diction, if you will. <laughs> or alternatively, all baddies are English, which, um, you know, makes a lot of sense to most of the world. I mean, all um, baddies have historically been English, so it's fine. <laughs> right, yeah. I think there's there's 20 countries in the world you haven't at some point taken military action against. Yeah. Out oh, of 200. Sorry. You know. It would be impressive if it wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, you've got to admire the dedication, I guess. Not really. No, as an Irish person, <laughs> really no. <don't. laughs> so, look, I said this was the best Star Wars thing since February. Bold words, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, and that does include Grogu and the dust bunnies, which, you know, does give me pause. But honestly, for me, this is maybe the best Star Wars thing since the 80s. What do you think? Oh, since the 80s is a big, a big thing. I, I, oh, that's difficult. It's not far off. For me, it's definitely the, the best Star Wars thing since The Last Jedi, which I think oh, yeah. was, 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 was pretty amazing. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, I'm with you. Anyone who has been listening to the Pilot TV podcast will have heard me bang on about this literally every week for the last few episodes. Well, hello, Kevin. Uh, I'm, I am obsessed with it. It is, I would say, my favorite show of the year, if I'm honest with you. I think it's incredible. It's yeah. it's up there for me. I mean, it's been a it's been a good year for you know fantasy and sci-fi yeah, nerds. You know, this is well, this is the thing. I would not have picked Andor to be the one to take that, right. that show TV crown with with the Rings of Power with House of the Dragon, uh, but it absolutely has. Although I will I will say this, I think it peaked with episode ten, and the more I think about it, the more I'm asking myself, should this season have ended? With episode ten, no, because no. But, but lay out your claim. Lay out your claim. <laughs> episode twelve were good and were satisfying in different ways, but it definitely peaked with episode ten, and I feel like they could have carried on some of the things that they were doing in episode eleven and twelve into the new season. Which is not to say that I didn't like it. It's just that the standards, the bar that it raised, it could not episode eleven and twelve reach that again for me. I, I'm actually with you that it peaked with episode 10. Uh, I, weirdly, Beth, uh, on the Pilot TV podcast, her, was, uh, her favourite episode was the finale. But Ooh, um, I know what you mean. I think it got to such dizzying heights at this point, it had to kind of slow down slightly. But I actually think it worked very well uh, with the final two episodes. It was kind of coming full circle, coming back to uh, Ferrix. Is it Ferrix? What is it? Ferrix? It's Ferrix. Yeah. Ferrix. There we are. Make sure yeah. I get the planet. It's not Dank Ferrix. It's just <laughs> Ferrix. It might also be Dank, but it's not Dank Ferrix. But Ferrix, like, you know, coming back there and sort of almost beginning 
like ending where it started with kind of the call to rebellion. He's gone this big old journey and he's come back where it began. And, you know, we talked last time about nobody putting Fiona Shaw in the corner. It's like you can't just, you know, she does not exit stage left. That is not a thing that happens. And even though she died, the fact that she was able to come back and literally tower over everyone and give that amazing <laughs> speech to, to cap off a series of amazing speeches, yeah. uh, it, it was absolutely extraordinary. You will notice that my, my Riverside name is Fuck the Empire and there is a reason for that. And that is at the very end of Fiona Shaw's speech when she says, fight the Empire. That is not what she said on the day. She literally said, fuck the Empire. That was oh, the line. Really? And that was the line in the show. And I don't think they were aware that Disney were going to let them push the boat out. They maybe thought they were allowed to push the boat out slightly further than they were. Uh, and they had to dial it back. I think Disney's thing was, yeah, go dark. Yep, have torture. But we draw the line at F-bombs, so you're not having it. Uh, I mean... And that was taken out. But apparently, like, it wasn't the only one. So uh, one of our listeners, uh, shall we say, was involved in the production in a capacity and they were saying to me that a lot of the extras were swearing and stuff and and because again they thought it was fine and they, people they were told not to because it just made it re- it was a nightmare to edit because they had to edit around them because you could see their lips and you could hear what they were saying but yes i think while they were making the show they may have thought there was slightly more language freedom than there was but fuck the empire would have been an amazing button for that speech it would be but uh, you know as an employee of empire james for many many years now it's an odd thing for you to say but fine um i uh, yeah, no, I think it had to end where it did as well. I think, I, yeah, I think, sure, absolutely. Episode ten was the most enthralling and exciting adventure episode, but it absolutely wasn't what the series was saying or where the series, I think, was going. You know, it had to get to a point of Cassian Andor listening to those tapes, hearing Marva's last words to him as well as her her big speech. It had to end up with him actively taking a position against the Empire and rescuing a friend and spiriting her away from a rebellion. It had to end with a people, his people, rising up against the Empire. And we can be pretty sure in the first episode of next season getting brutally crushed by the Empire. And I feel like that is all absolutely key to what this story is doing, which is about, it seems to me at least, and we can discuss this, becoming a rebel it is, it is going from being dissatisfied with the government, a place where I imagine many of us are right now, <laughs> to actively, you know, taking up arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing ending them. You know, so I feel like that's the sort of, well, that was a bit of Hamlet, but that was the Hamletian vibe of this whole season, to me at least. Yeah, no, absolutely uh, agree with that. In the first of the three episode block casting is sort of forced into working with Luthen. The final shot of this is him making a choice to work with Luthen, which I really, really loved. And just to pick up on something you previously said when it comes to Marvel's last words, in 11, when she died sort of off screen, I was a little bit surprised that we didn't actually get to properly see that. Like, I, 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 without knowledge of episode 12, that we were going to get more Fiona Shaw scenes. That surprised me. Her speech in episode 12, not only the big speech, but... The words which oh, I've forgotten the Brasso. name of the Brasso, wasn't it Brasso? Where, where Brasso recounts to Cassian really hit me hard because you have that, the, I think the final scene of episode 11 is uh, Cassian on the radio sort of um, trying to get a message to Marvel, like tell her that she'd be proud of me, all the rest of it, because he isn't still fully convinced that she knows what he's been up to, but that speech confirms that she absolutely does know and that she's proud of him. And that line... Tell him I love him more than anything you could ever do wrong is just... That's a great line. I mean, the dialogue on this show. I mean, the, yeah, the, it, it, Tony Gilroy, I think we can say without too much controversy, 
can write. Yes, um, he can. <laughs> but I think that that speech is really important because I think he he goes into this episode with a huge amount of grief and guilt, especially guilt that she died alone or at least without him. And I think what that does is go some way to lessening that guilt and and freeing him of that particular hang-up and freeing him, I think, of a lot of the hang-ups that he had with Marvin, with his family and his whole life. So I think that was really, really important. I also feel like, and I'm going to come back to my favourite here, B2 Emo is really, really key in getting across the fact that someone has died and that's sad because he's like a little child. And it's uh, that's that first scene where Brasso's basically trying to talk him out of his little charging station where he retreats whenever he's worried is absolutely heartbreaking. I loved it. And that Imperial Bellend tips him over. Helen, what was your Riverside name today? Mine is B2 Emo Pop. It's Emo <laughs> Pop is a thing. <laughs> but no, I thought it was I thought that was a really lovely moment. And I, I really like I really like Brasso generally. I just think Brasso's great and I really like his little attempts to very, very kindly, you know, supportively coax B2 out of his out of his little <laughs> retreat. He's, he's also very good at knocking people out with a brick. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he, he runs the gamut. What can I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> we had death troopers in this episode, which was nice in the finale. So we got to see some of those death troopers again. I always quite like the death troopers. They are always very, very tall. I wonder who they get to play these particular death troopers, but they also uh, literally lanky. basketball players. It's literally basketball believe, players. Yeah, mm, yeah. They're, they're quite looming the old lanky death troopers. But I quite liked seeing those in there. Uh, there was there's a reference to Canto Bite at one point, which mm-hmm. didn't feel too shoehorned in. No, I thought that was that that made sense from everything yeah. we know of Canto Bite. That sort of fit for me. Yeah, yeah. go and gamble there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought that was lovely. And uh, going back to sort of the penultimate episode, which is another one that I guess we haven't talked about, you know, which was setting up this final episode as all the kind of pieces are, are put onto the board. You know, one of these things this series has been accused in some circles of is not having enough read any space combat and that's fair you know and that's something we define star wars by but this sequence short-lived as it was was pretty fucking good just like because you you think what's in he's in the tractor beam you know he's having his sort of hand soloesque conversation we're all fine here now how are you you know trying to stall them and then okay look i have some issues with how long it takes to charge up ballistic missiles really can't you just press a button like what are they doing that's taking time but you know drama but the fact that it fires all those little flechettes which shred the kind of the tractor beam array and then he spins around and then he has fucking lightsabers in its wings you're like all right fair enough that ship may look you know she may not look like much but she's got it where it counts kid the fondor i love that sequence so much oh what a blast i yeah uh, literally <laughs> literally and yeah i think you know in the second season we're definitely going to see more of it but the time for playing it safe, I think, is about to be over. Um, and Luthen is a guy who plays it very safe. Uh, but that I is when... In, in general, I mean, the, the guy is doing, you know, disguises. He's doing a different thing. Like, but yeah. that one is like, you know... But that's because okay. what he's doing is so hazardous. Like, it's yeah. the opposite of playing it safe. Yeah. He puts himself on the front lines more than he probably should, given that he is essentially the, you know, the fulcrum for this network. Mm. But hey-ho. But I know what you mean. He's stepping up a gear, definitely, and and entering a kind of a new era. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I also like that we got a little bit of a callback to Alex Sharp's character, who was, um, you know, coming up with basically a rebel manifesto. And so that's another great speech, actually. The the sort of voiceover from that tape was another great speech this episode. But yeah, um, I I want a ship with lasers on the wings. That was freaking cool. That was really good. Uh, Let's talk about Mon Mothma, though, for a minute, because you brought up Canto Bite. And that, of course, 
comes in this fantastic scene uh, with her good-for-nothing husband. By the way, Perrin <laughs> Andor. Are we in a Wheel of Time spoiler special? Come on. There are no anyway. Alans in this, unfortunately, but, you know. Okay, it's got an apostrophe, James. The apostrophe matters. Oh, my God. Respect my people. Anywho. Yeah, so uh, Mon Mothma seems to come up with a very clever kind of get-out clause for her dilemma to some degree in that she basically blames all the missing money on her good-for-nothing husband. Two birds, <laughs> one stone, boom. I know, yeah. that was amazing. He is such a douchebag. <laughs> yeah, he really is. Although I do think he's, um, Mon Mothma, she's still going to have to go ahead with this business with her daughter because I think that's a temporary measure in terms of the distraction from the money. She's still going to need that money coming in. She's still going to need to go through. And that's going to be interesting to see, because even though I, I've got little to no love for her daughter, it's still her daughter, and there's still anguish there, because she knows what that could lead to, even though her daughter is very up for being married off, etc. I'm going to be yeah. interested to see what that goes in season two. I like the character of the daughter, actually. I think she's quite interesting, because it's not like she's just a brat. Like I think she genuinely has issues with her mother which you can kind of understand where they mm. come from as well i don't think it's unfounded she's not just acting out and obviously she's she's in that teenage phase where she's looking for her own identity and she's embraced kind of fundamentalism of her home culture which is regrettable but i like that i like that she's a complex character and that they have a complex relationship i think that's one of the many things about the show that everything feels lived in everything feels like there's a very similar shoot that runs through it all which you don't always get with star wars but you can mm. get quite sort of one note characters and all of these characters just feel real they feel like they have an inner life and and i appreciate yeah. that and there's something like 200 speaking parts in this show over the 12 episodes i mean the, you know there there are there is a lot of texture to this world there's a lot of depth to this world and i think that all helps it you know when it's the same and we've we've complained about this on a, on a slightly different scale but we've complained about the fact this, that the star wars universe feels small when you have the same five people meeting over and over yeah. again but if you have, you know, a series populated by this many characters, it does bring it something extra and it does give it something that kind of zhuzhes mm. the whole thing up. Um, and yes, it also helps that they're completely messed up characters in many ways and, and flawed characters. And I think it's interesting that so many of the rebel leaders are bad parents or have these flaws <laughs> in their own lives. Like I've, I've, we've talked in the past when we, when we talked about... Uh, that third Star Wars film that we won't mention in case Ben bursts into the room and shouts, it was good, actually. In that, you know, it, it's pretty clear by the end of that that Princess Leia wasn't a great mother. She had many great qualities, but maybe motherhood was not among them. Mon Mothma, also a fantastic rebel leader. Maybe not a super duper present, loving, caring mother. And I think there's, you know, there's an interesting thing to be said here about the divide between personal and private mm -hmm. life and... The, the way we may, you know, choose one at the expense of the other. Yeah, but then also every time she looks at her daughter, all she can probably see is Senor Douche Nozzle, her husband. So, you know, I imagine there's a lot of uh, a lot of psychological baggage there. That may also come into it, yes. And uh, as as might the fact that her daughter seems intent on finding her own douchebag as soon as possible. <laughs> I have a question. What did you guys think of the Stinger to episode 12? The one that we called last time. Yep, I said yeah. it. <laughs> That's a Helen guarantee paid off. <laughs> Are you finally doing it? I think that's the first time. No, I'm time absolutely not doing it. <laughs> yeah, only in retrospect. I'm not fucking talking about it at See, the time. I can't believe you, you gotta you gotta commit Helen. No, I don't. I absolutely don't. I'm here oh to my discuss gosh. and not to make predictions. I'm with Or Helen. at least not to make guarantees. Yeah, I, I I thought that made a lot of sense and I think it gives a little bit of extra oomph to that whole prison escape and to that whole 
thread of the story that, you know, and, and also it just makes sense, of course. Yeah. Again, Tony Gilroy has talked about the fact that this is based not on any one rebellion, but like on the the entirety of human history. It's the French resistance. It's the French Revolution. It's the Russians. It's, you know, it's everybody. And, and you do get slave u- labor used for these gigantic war projects. Like yeah. that is a common thread throughout the history of oppression. So it, it made perfect, perfect logical sense as well as, you know, dramatically ironic mm. sense. And it is lame is in space, as has been pointed out, I think. Uh, which is why you love it, James. It is why now I love I it. Understand. <laughs> Do you hear the people sing? Oh, yeah, it's very good. Well, we, I mean, look, I'm going to open the door for him on here for a second, but let's talk about the people <laughs> singing because after being very down on elements of the score in the first three episodes, and I was, and I remain down on those scores, I've gone back and checked, still don't like it. I will on, say okay. I really, really liked the music by the, by the end of the show. The, the the sort of funeral march of the Daughters of Ferrex is fantastic and I absolutely love it. I also adore the fact that they got real musical instruments and were like, these yeah. have to be playable, but they have to look alien. And they just put weird just, panels yeah, over French horns and flutes. <laughs> I love that, like, you know, June had to have space bagpipes. Uh, Tony Gilroy was like, I want a space big band, a big brass band, all of it. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Nicholas Patel does not miss, and he did not miss in the first few episodes of this He show, did. I'm sorry. That Those drums are an abomination, and they should be shot. The drums, not the person playing them, just to be clear. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I love the score all the way through, and this is a benefit to having composers work with the show and with the director from an early stage. That is how you get music, which is not only really good in a Diegetic way in terms of the actual show and what's music being played in the actual show, but there's so many instances throughout this entire season where you can tell that there were multiple conversations about how the music would fit in with the character, with the storytelling in the moment as well, which I absolutely love. And that the the funeral scene is just just one example of that. I just I love how different. It has felt to so much of what has come before in Star Wars. A lot of the times, you know, and rightfully so, because John Williams is the goat. When you when the composer approaches the Star Wars score, that is the thing which they are taking the most inspiration from. Here, if you go and uh, read Nicholas Patel's interviews, he'll, he'll say this, but like he start, start, started with a complete blank slate, was working with Goroy for months beforehand, before anything was even ever shot, and this is the result of that. It's it's fantastic work and. It's actually an interview uh, with Nicholas Patel in the current issue of Empire that I did talking about the club banger that is Niamas, the Monana Club mix, which is a very fun. So, yeah, he's the best. I mean, you just said John Williams was the goat, which implies he's the best. <laughs> okay. It's all relative. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yes. Well, let's talk about a bit about characters. So let's talk a little bit about Dedra because I think we can dispense with her relatively quickly in these, especially this last episode. But she had a little bit less to do here at the end of the season, and I feel like they're saving her up for the future. Quite literally saving her in the case of her last scene in this Saved by the incel, Cyril Khan. (laughs) Who saw that coming? It's really interesting, actually. She did an interview with uh, our own Ben Travis, which will hopefully be on the website by the time people uh, listen to this. And she was talking about that and about how, you know, why she reacts. You know, when he he creeps her out, stalks Mm -hmm. her and turns up and then, like, grabs her. 
Uh, and the idea is that she was saying that she saw it as like, you know, she's someone who doesn't like physical contact. She's someone who's probably never been touched. Like she doesn't have a personal life of any kind. She works full time for the empire. This is, she believes in this wholeheartedly and she has, shall we say, interpersonal issues. Uh, that said, he's a massive stalkery weirdo. So anyone <laughs> would react in that way. But I thought her reading on that was really interesting that she saw her as the polar opposite to Luthen. Like he is all fire and burning and she is all ice and cold reserve where she's iced all of her life kind of into, mm. into sort of this little box so that she can focus entirely on her job because that's what she believes in. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was quite an interesting reading of the character as a sort of a very sort of like reserved, sort of emotionally repressed, quite, you know, fragile in her own way, but also tough as nails. Yeah. And and actually terrifying in her capacity for evil, I think, which mm. is which is the other interesting uh, thing about her. I, f- I feel like it's it's interesting if there will be a, reli- a, a an alliance, if you will, going between those two in future, because I feel like together they're going to be exponentially worse than See, individually. You, you say that, and I know I'm playing perhaps into my stereotype a little bit, but I'm not sure either of them are evil. I think they are no. both, yeah, they're both very, you know, misguided and in, like he's utterly inflexible. He's very much a by the book, black and white, this is right, this is wrong, and sees no shades of grey and cannot think outside the box. And she is so eclipsed by what she thinks is, I think she's also quite career-minded, but I think mm, she very. believes in that that thing where it's all about order and you have to bring order into chaos and that these people are terrorists, they're not they're not revolutionaries. It was really interesting. Uh, there was a thing on, I think it was last week tonight, a few weeks ago, where John Oliver played some clips from the BBC, and it was the British talking about, I cannot remember which country we had colonized and abused at that particular point but they were talking about these people who are essentially were fighting to get their homes back which had been seized by the british and the way they were just dismissed as terrorists and our brave boys were going in to put them down as was always the british messaging it's like i mean one empire is very similar to another in many regards it's just that kind of top-down oppressive view of everything and i guess if you are that way inclined it's quite easy to buy into that if that's the only point of view you see Yes, but that's not the same as not being evil. They may not intend or believe they're doing evil, but still be doing evil. Just to be clear on that. Well, I mean, this Obi-Wan is the whole Kenobi's this is the whole there, Nuremberg know. trials. Like, let's not get back into that. But like, this is literally obeying orders is not a get out of jail free. No, card. completely, completely. But then you know, you look at like governments today, like the American government uses torture to get information. So does the empire. Well, you know, yes. there's. Has torture ever supplied useful information? No, no. I would say but, not. But, you know, mm. here we are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't. I certainly do not agree with that method. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that, James. Yeah, it's important. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the nuance that you guys are both getting at, um, and I love that. Here's a question. Do you feel that they're both too far gone at this stage for an about-face? I don't think this is a show with many heel-face turns. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this show recognises those as I don't think it recognizes as kind of a binary morality I think it just it's not that they're I think the show kind of tries I mean it doesn't completely but it tries not to judge them in those terms I think it's this is where she is these are her politics these are her goals these are her aims and this is what she's trying to do she doesn't think she's wrong we on we're very much in the and or count we obviously think she's wrong but I don't think that there's a redemption up for her because I don't think she thinks she needs to be redeemed um, perhaps she'll find a measure of happiness, though, if she, you know, in terms of her personal life, because I'm, I'm shipping for her and Cyril at this point. Oh, my so. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Look, I, I, I think it's a bit more, yeah, I think it's it's more complicated than that. I think you're right. But I think that the there is the, there is the possibility in this show, in this universe, in this moral outlook for one or both of them to get to a point where they're like, this is too far, this is too much, this is bad. 
I don't think that necessarily means they suddenly do something good. I suddenly think, I think that means they go, oh shit, now I'm in trouble. And I, do you know what I mean? So I don't think it's a suddenly like, oh, I'm going to lead you to safety. Come on, guys. I think it's more of a, shit, it's too late to back out and I'm surrounded by still loyal Empire troops, so I still have to give the order to fire. That seems more a more likely outcome for any moral awakening on the part of these two. There's a moral awakening and they still do the wrong thing. That seems to be the kind of show that this is. Perhaps I'm overly cynical, but that's how it feels to me. Um, you, know, you know what you just did there, Helen? What's that? You gave a Helen guarantee. No, I didn't. <laughs> Again, come on, not doing it. I'm just there saying no that's guarantees. how it seems to me. At best, you will get a dire warning, but that is all you're getting from me. But no, I think, I th yeah, I agree with you. I think I think it's really interesting, and I think it's also if you look at, you know, you look at, uh, at Mon Mothma, and like what 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 triggers her initially. It's not necessarily, though. I'm sure she is concerned about it. It's not necessarily the evil that the empire is doing or the oppressive nature of the empire. What what gets her initially? It's it's imperial overreach. Like it's the fact that she sees what was a democracy turning into an autocracy, and that is essentially what gets her hackles up. That she sees the emperor getting more and more power. She sees the senators being more and more ignored. And as we see at the beginning of A New Hope or Star Wars, as it is properly known, like <laughs> the emperor essentially dissolves the senate, and it then becomes you know, an, an, an imperially top-down-led empire. And she is really interesting because, uh, like you say, it's not just a, a, as, as simple as, oh, hooray, let's go rebel. I mean, she's basically been giving the rebellion money and she's been somewhat fighting for democracy, if you like, in the Senate. That That's what she's been doing. It's not far off filling in petitions and posting outraged tweets. Like, it's a bit more effectual than Disgusted that. Disgusted of not, Coruscant. Yeah, she's not out there on the front lines with a gun, is she? You know. No. So, um, so I think her, she's almost being radicalised as well. And she's being radicalised because they are, they are closing the avenues of more legitimate grievance... And so it's getting to the point where she will have to join the armed rebellion to make the same kind of difference she was trying to make through debate. And I think that's really interesting. And then you have, you know, what we are what we're doing here, the the origin story that we are telling is the story of a guy who will walk up and shoot Daniel Mays yeah. rather than be captured. So the moral point that we're trying to get to is murder, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting as well because it makes it's pretty clear from the beginning of Rogue One to say he's not a good guy. Like he's like he he might have a kind heart in certain situations, but he can be a raging, you know, well, cold blooded murderer. And I love playing in this particular sandbox where it has moved away from that very binary Star Wars. You are either the good side or you are the the dark side. And I think you know the Last Jedi really played with that idea, like grey sides of the Force. That there was, no, and this is what one of the many things that enraged me about Rise of Skywalker is it did away with that ambiguity, and we found ourselves much more in a binary space again which was a shame because like the idea of sort of like broadening that out and making it slightly less simplistic always really appealed to me absolutely let's talk as well about the people on ferrix a little bit so we, we touched on marva but she has a lot to say this episode despite being dead we also have brasso we also have curly hair who's the son of the guy who they tortured whose name i have forgotten the, the guy who makes the bombing and and you know it's an interesting group again it's people who are being radicalized by being oppressed rather than necessarily born rebels. I think Marva's yeah. probably a born rebel. Brasso maybe has inclinations in that direction. You know, some of the others would have just kept going to work. It's interesting, though, that all of these things, all of it 
all of these these dominoes they all fall and it all traces back to that one inciting incident at the beginning of the episode he kills two security officers who were no bullying own, him who were bullying him he and he didn't mean to kill them like he yeah. kills well he doesn't mean to kill one of them and you know <laughs> Like he kills them and then murders the other one because he kind of has to. But that sets in this chain of events which causes the Empire to have a direct presence on that planet, which they never had any, any intention of having before then. And essentially, so it's interesting, like that idea that almost like butterfly flaps its wings sort mm. of thing, that that one event sends this rebellion sort of barreling along and turns it into what it ultimately becomes. It's it's uh, it's the law of unintended consequences, isn't it? It's it's um, and it is this this chaotic nature of what Alex Sharp talks about this this idea that freedom is natural and it's authority and order that are unnatural and have to be imposed from above. I just love how in the finale episode that tension slowly builds as you see the different elements gradually come together to light the powder keg, which is then set off by that amazing sort of marvelous speech and the fuck the empire line uh, which is great uh so so yeah really really well done can we also mention uh vel sartha who i you know initially had kind of dismissed but faye marcy's performance really really captured me i love that character i love that she's ruthless now is she mon mothma's sister cousin, cousin what is she cousin. cousin so cousin yeah you know i love the fact that she's a frontline rebel and she will do absolutely everything she needs to do including killing cassian andor and also lest we forget faye Marseille is the waif from game of thrones so she has form in this department <laughs> but but also she is less radical than her girlfriend yeah, like Cinta yeah. is more left. radical than her, and it causes problems <laughs> in their relationship. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like that's yeah. fascinating. And also the fact that you know, really low key, there is a queer relationship in this, which is kind of feels like a a bit of a kind of fuck you to Rise of Skywalker and that incredibly cowardly sort of like kiss that they have, and then no, don't dwell on it. I love mm-hmm. the fact that it's here, and I also love the fact that it's just no big deal, mm. uh, and I think that's that's lovely as well. And, and that they have issues that are in no way related to that. It doesn't flow yeah. from that. doesn't have anything yeah. to do with that. Mm-hmm. Also, by the way, Sinta's uh, assassination of the ISB agent on the planet, whose yes. name I have forgotten. Mm. Amazing work. Amazing. Yeah. Now, just, I completely agree on the queer relationship. I think part of the reason why it's so good as well is that they haven't sort of advertised it. A lot of the times, my frustration with Disney when it comes to that side of things is that they will say and they'll make a big song and dance about it and then there'll be relatively nothing. Here... I wouldn't call it relatively nothing. There's still a lot more that they can do in regards to it. And I think they might get more of it in season two. But again, as you say, they haven't made a big deal of it both in the show and both in the real world. And I think that, that makes sense. It does. It helps. So who do we have on the on the ship taking off at the end? Because I want to talk a little bit about where all the pieces are on the board. So we've got Brasso, Emo, Bix... And the curly hair with the bomb, whose name I still forget, I apologise. <laughs> and the, one of the daughters of Ferrix as a pilot, uh, heading off mm. into the sunset. I'm hoping they don't do an Alien 3. I'm hoping that we see that ship full of people again. I hope so. Bix has been through a lot. Yeah, yeah she has. And I feel like her story isn't finished. I also no. wonder at the fact that we have not seen evidence that she did or did not tell the Empire anything. And that I feel that feels like a loose thread, deliberately dangling uh, mm-hmm. for season two. Agreed. Do you, do we think that she definitely told them something, or do you think that she misled them? What, what what's your, your well? Mind this is it. I genuinely don't know. I I think I feel like she possibly told them something because she's clearly suffering a lot uh, from the torture, and she could have told them something to try to make it stop. Um, whether she told them the truth or not, it depends on how much of her mind was present at the time. I don't know. 
What do you think? She definitely told them something. It's just what she told them. <laughs> Did she identify Luthan? Like how much of that's coming? Oh, I mean, speaking of you know Luthan, like there's so much more that's going to be explored in the second season. Like we, you know Saw Guerrero, like we we saw him and he dominated the scenes he was in. What two of them? Uh, I want to see more Saw, more Saw, all the Saw. Give me Saw Guerrero. I was going to say with the Luthan of it all, I think the most interesting thing. This is. Saw Love and the Mon Guarantee. I'm still figuring this out, but where my head is at in terms of the season two. Why are you shaking your head at me, Helen? If we were to scientifically break down the hit miss ratio of a Mon Guarantee, I have more I hits think than you, you think will I find do. the word guarantee is a misnomer. <laughs> we may need to change the name going forward, maybe. Yes, um, and a Mon stab in the dark. That's, uh, I think, more accurate. <laughs> Which, incidentally, is what you'll both be getting if you don't get all of it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be interesting. I think in the course of season two, there's going to come a point where the thing for the good of the mission as a whole is going to involve Luthen making a sacrifice for him on himself. And it'll be interesting to see if he will then go through with that or if he will not. I think that's oh. going to be one of the things that... I mean, yes, that's possible. I feel like you may be underestimating because I think if anybody's a true believer, it's him. And I, I and he wears it lightly, but I think he is very much a true believer. Uh, I, I, you know, he he cloaks it in cynicism, if you will, along with a cloak. But what does uh, he sacrifice? Everything. Yeah, I, I genuinely, I think I do feel like that's not the danger for him. What I think is interesting is he is clearly getting less comfortable than he claims with sacrifices. He he had grave qualms about giving up uh, Krieger. 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 Yeah. Um, and I think he he really hesitated. And I think that moment on the ship was actually a loss of control. It wasn't just a cool action scene. It was an, a very atypical stepping outside of his comfort zone. And yes, as you say, getting playing it less safe. But playing it less safe in a, in a way that is a danger to not just himself physically, but everything he's built. And I think that's really interesting. So I feel like what we may be seeing is him taking more and more risks. And again, this this happens with rebel leaders, right? This happens in in history. This happens with, you know, a lot of the French resistance leaders didn't make it to 1945, or if they did, they made it to like January, you know? So I think there's a real danger. I, I mean, look, I can, if I were going to guarantee something, it would be that Luthen isn't alive at the end of the season, next season. That's yeah. like, I just, I'd I don't see that, that happening. But but I'm I'm interested to see how that goes because I feel like he is losing more and more. He is feeling more and more desperate. He is feeling more and more driven to take more and more risks, and that's a really interesting place for someone like him to be in. Let's talk about his relationship though with with Gera, Sol Gera because that did feel like they were coming a little bit closer than they maybe had been in the past because of this kind of radicalization of Luthen. At mm. least that's how it seemed to me. What did you guys think? There's a respect there between... But it's true, they've come from different areas. So Saul Guerrero is very much a kind of boots on the ground, really putting himself out. Talk about taking big risks. Like, he seems like that kind of loose cannon type, whereas Luthen is very much a, you know, pull strings from the shadows type. Uh, and I think you're right. They, they maybe meet slightly in the middle by the end of it. I think Saul reacts very badly to the burning of Krieger, but ultimately, I think, respects him for having the nerve 
to go through with it and to sacrifice this guy for the greater good because he's you know initially he's, he's kind of like yeah the greater good <laughs> you know initially he, he reacts very negatively to it and then you see that kind of grudging respect he's like yes this is the way to go and I think I think Luther as you say he didn't want to do it but I never got a sense from him that he was unwilling to go through he, he, he definitely was looking for a way out if someone could have given him a way out he'd have taken it but he's yeah I mean he's cold-blooded yeah. he was looking to not shoulder all of that responsibility he was definitely saw you make the decision it's your choice you you do it which uh, I find interesting in comparison to how I felt about them in the final scene of episode 10 where it, I, I didn't get those misgivings in, in that scene he felt like he was perfectly maybe not perfectly okay but like I didn't get the sense of doubt that I did watching that conversation with Saul but is, is that great. does that doubt come out because he's dealing with essentially an equal you know I feel like w- it, when he's talking to like his mole on the inside he has to project utter ruthlessness determination mm. to keep this guy essentially in line and to keep him in place with Saul he's kind of talking to an you know a peer he's talking to an equal and I feel like that's maybe part of that dynamic coming through I think that I think his conversations with Saul are more honest in a weird way even when he's holding back more that I agree with and yeah I love it I, I'm not gonna go ahead and call them besties just yet but huh. they're on their way <laughs> But again, I'm just like, I'm loving the the nuance of the portrayal of rebellions and the portrayal of the politics of, of these kind of civil wars, essentially. Like, Saul's a hardliner, Saul's a my way or the highway kind of purist. Yeah. And Luthen's like, I don't have time for this shit. I just need to destroy the empire, and which is a far more realistic position, but one that, you know, has always kind of struggled I like his self-awareness as well. Mm. I like the fact that Luther, you know, even in his magnificent speech when he's like, I'm cursed to use the tools of my enemy. Like he's aware Mm. that he's not exactly covering himself in glory, but it's just Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to have to get down and get dirty if I'm going to have any hope of dislodging this monster that's kind of like looming over all of us. Mm. That's what this entire show is about in many respects, because there's that famous Yoda line, there's no do or do not. Oh there's my god. A... There is there are <laughs> many famous Yoda not, lines. No that try. is not one. <laughs> do or do not. There is no try. Yeah. Um and this is all about the trying of it. Even though these guys doing all these things right now, they don't know what the end result is gonna be. They don't know that eventually what what we know in terms of the Empire will be done, but they are still sort of trying their best to to have a hope of yeah. that end result. And, and you I, hope I love that. <laughs> uh, I wonder if Luther ever wondered if the uh, you know he burned his life for the dawn he would ever see he will never see. I wonder if he ever ever in his wildest dreams wondered whether that dawn would involve a load of teddy bears singing yub nub and throwing fireworks into the sky. <laughs> I'm saying probably not, but well, I'm saying if so, he overlooked a, a fearsome guerrilla force <laughs> um, because really, you know, they 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 punched above their weight. Um, they did. I, I do love. I mean, getting back to that idea of that the monolithic enormous barrier of the empire that final sting just the scale of the death star because Mm. you can hear it's the size of a small planet but it takes like a shot like that going from something where we know the size of that piece right it's it's a big thing that takes a couple of guys to lift and (laughs) um and you pull back from that and back and back and back and back. And it's yeah. a tiny, tiny cog in the Death Star. But can we talk about the construction technique? Because when they build the second Death Star, they build it kind of side to side. Yeah. You know, it's like, 
Uh, what did they realize? It did, was it not efficient enough the first time? Were there budget cuts? Like, why did they make it in such a different way? Because it feels like it feels like that large main weapon deflector is the last thing installed, and yet it's one of the first things on the second Death Star. But maybe that's because they were trying to surprise the rebels with the second Death Star. Yeah, by making like, get the gun working. Get the gun working, you fuckers. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that was it. It's so like, that might be it. But also, um, it didn't. My my only note about that final scene was that doesn't look five years from completion. No, it looks like five minutes from completion. Yeah. yeah. And aren't we supposed to be more like a few years uh, in advance of Rogue One, which is it's just before A New Hope? point. Yes, I don't know. But you're right. It looks very much like it's in the final stages. Yeah. But a star is fully operational. <laughs> Helen, Maybe there's yeah, some... only one explanation. It's a trap! <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, it might be, as, we, as we've as we just discussed, it might be that they're building the outside first and the inside is yeah, just this is disaster. It. It's all just like, yeah. It's all not just... a single wired yeah. toilet, plumbed toilet, you know, it's all not, no wallpaper. And, yeah. yeah. It's just, just... going to make the outside look good for the inspectors to, yeah. Yeah, to show yeah. progress, all the rest it, of it. Hang on, inspectors... There's the, the Death Star. If the Death Star had inspectors, it might hey, have the old handrail. I don't believe. For, I think if Andor has taught us anything, it's that the Empire is 100% red tape and bureaucracy. You better believe there are inspectors. You know, that's probably why it takes five years. There's health and safety shit up the wazoo. And they Again, know. where are the handrails? If there is true, health and safety, true. where are the handrails? Where are the handrails on anything? Everyone could just plummet to their doom every five minutes. The Emperor clearly has all the inspectors killed because it takes so long. I think that's 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 it. Of course, of yeah. course. Now everything <laughs> makes sense. All right. So apart from like the inevitable death of many of the people we've come to know and love, what are you expecting in season two? I seem to recall it has a slightly different structure than season one. I think it's been revealed. Denise Goff mentioned in an interview something to do with flashbacks and like it's got I think, a slightly I think, different temporal structure. I think so. Like four four years with like three episodes on each year. Is what I read. Yeah, so time jumping. That was it, not flashbacks, yeah. time jumping. So yeah, it's gonna it's gonna <laughs> skip through time a little bit. But it's interesting. What I hope they don't lose is I've loved the pacing of this show that it's been quite deliberate and, mm. and it's given you time. You know, I hope it doesn't skip too much long because I don't I don't want to end up in a House of the Dragon situation where you're like, Oh, what's that? A decade's passed <laughs> since the previous episode. Okay, <laughs> fine. Half the characters of age, the rest apparently haven't, but that's yeah. okay. You Wait, know, so is B2 Emo gonna grow up? Yeah, and become a different droid what, what be too easy listening by the end of it i don't know but uh yeah i i, I so i hope they don't lose i don't think they will uh I, i'm not too concerned if it evolves slightly in the format changes i think that's fine too but as for where it will go you know i think i said this last time the joy of this show has been i've never ever been able to predict what it's going to do from one episode to the next yeah. because it has been very untraditional in its structure and in its pacing and i hope that continues i hope it continues to surprise and delight us as we go here's a question that may be answered in season two but i'm intrigued to get your take on this because this season opens with cassian on a search for his sister yeah and they have sister. that like the first three episodes and then they kind of drop that storyline really only do the you, first one yeah really exactly so do you think yeah. we're gonna pick up with that at all or do you think that that's just done now i think we will at least hear a story of something happening to her i don't know if we mm. meet her but i feel like there may be some kind of not good closure on that. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. It could be good closure. Maybe she's living very, very happily. I feel like that but, whole indigenous yeah. story requires some more. If it needs some closure of some kind, 
But then, if it, you know, the, one of the things about the series, which has also been good, is that it knows when not to give you artificial closure. Like like the Kino Lois situation, it knew that he can't swim, we are never going to see this guy again. And that is the perfect end to that character, because that's real life. People come in and out of the action, in and out of your lives. You go, then you never see them again. And I like and- that. It's literally in his slogan, one way out, and the way involves swimming, and so he can't swim, and therefore he has no way out. I mean, it feels that way. I mean, it may be that we see him, but again, I, I don't expect him to be in a good place if we do. I hope I hope we don't see him. Not because I didn't love that character, but I did. But I just think because that's the perfect end to him, and it's also the perfect rebuke to the rise of Skywalker, where everyone's fucking related. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like no, he's just a guy in a huge galaxy, and there are many other people out there. Let's yeah. move on. I'm going to say something nice about Ben Travis now. <laughs> he we don't allow great. that on this podcast, Amon. You should know that by now. He wrote a really great piece on Andor for Empire Online, which you should all he check did. out. Yes, he did. Yeah. And and look, I mean, they're, they've I think just started shooting season two. I think they're shooting until like the summer. I think they're shooting until June or July. Um, so you know, there's a lot more time here to uh, to indulge us basically and tell more stories and uh, introduce more complications and more moral ambiguity into the Star Wars universe. And hopefully, I, th- I honestly raise the bar for for Star Wars again because like I I have liked the Mandalorian a lot of the time. Yes, I thought Boba Fett was a piece of shit, but then I did going into the show. So, you know, what have we lost? So I'm I'm really hoping that this kind of zhuzhes Star Wars and encourages them to reach a bit higher. Because, yes, their viewing figures, I think, have been a little bit soft to begin with. But I feel like with all the hype and with, with all the praise and with all the word of mouth that we three alone have been responsible for, <laughs> you know, it feels like uh, it feels like it could really build an audience as people go into the Christmas holidays and go, you know what, I've got a bit of time on my hands. Let me just actually watch this show. Yeah, you know? I, absolutely. And I hope it, it, it alters, or not saying alters, it informs their thought process for Star Wars going forward. Like, could they do a movie with this kind of ethos? Like, could they do more TV series that don't necessarily play in this time period, but like adopt this more adult sensibility? You know, there's room, like now that we have like TV and films and Disney Plus and all this, there is room for everything. There's room for animated shows for kids, I'm on. Uh, there's room for uh, <laughs> the blur blur. Uh, oh, there's gosh. room for, you know, like the big, big budget movies that fun for the family, but there's room for adult content as well, like edgy stuff. You know, The Wire in Space. 100%. Give it to me. Give it to me now. <laughs> we almost got through one Star Wars thing without you being naughty to animation. Good this no. is so... Gosh. Hey, I said nice things about the Studio Ghibli one, just FYI. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Have you got any nice things to say about James, about that, James, to save yourself here? Or... Absolutely no. not. Gosh. Um, but yeah, no, I the bar has definitely been raised with Andor. Even whether they they still sort of more of a good bad thing um, in terms of not playing in the grey like this does, I just hope the quality of storytelling rises. Um, yeah. Because as I said in the last Andor special that we did, it would really suck to go back to <laughs> mediocre Star Wars after yeah. this when mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I didn't know that Star Wars was capable of this until this. Let's, the rise uh, of storytelling, if you will. Indeed. So yeah, fingers crossed that um, everyone can fix up look sharp to quote Disney Absolutely. And that we'll get more from all these characters, good and bad, come mm-hmm. probably what, twenty twenty four mid twenty twenty four. Yeah, I think it's twenty four, isn't it? Oh, 
Yeah, to wait a whole year and a half. Come on. Uh, well, we have some stuff in between, right? We have some more Star Wars content to look forward to. Maybe it yeah. will be this good. We don't know. Nobody was excited yeah. about this show. Let's that be honest. That is true. I'm now <laughs> so. I'm now looking at uh, the acolyte and whatnot with a sense of renewed hope. So mm. uh, a Helen, new hope, I've, if you will. A new hope. Perfect. Yes, indeed. Uh, I have thought, Helen, there may not be just to pick up on your wheel of time thread. There may not be an Alan, but if there were one, he could be an Alan Mandragorian. So, hey. good wheel of time joke for you. <laughs> Look, there. we are making great wheel of time jokes that like three people are getting <laughs> yeah. out there. I mean, really you guys the, are the so one, lucky. Yeah, the one person out there who gets it is really enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> so. But he's having a great time. So, hello. She, Helen, it's definitely a she. she. It is a she. Okay, it's a, a, I said I. I think that's probably it. But yes, cannot wait for Andor season two. In the meantime, I think we have what? We have Ahsoka Tano coming up, do we? With Very the excited about Super Ahsoka. Ahsoka. Yeah, we have we have much stuff to come and we do, yes, as James says, go into it with a new hope that they will be this freaking awesome. But with that, it is time to say goodbye to Marvelous Amon Warman. <laughs> I don't want to be alone. I want Marva. <laughs> I feel like there's a I really want like an Andor, a Cassian Andor sort of Batman v Superman crossover with a why did you say that name? But he's like misheard it. There's, there's a joke there. I've been like working on it for a week. I can't get it. Anyway. Your mother's name Marva too. <laughs> it's goodbye to fuck the Empire. That's Empire's <laughs> editor, James yes, Dyer. I should qualify that it's not just pilot TV propaganda. I, of course, love the Empire podcast. It's all good. All right. And it is goodbye from me, B2 Emo Pop, a.k.a. Helen O'Hara. I'm off to watch Andor again. I'm going to be totally honest <laughs> yes. with you. It's that good. Bye. Bye.